Well, good morning, Hallows Church, and guests who have decided to tune in with us today. I'm so glad that you've done so. My name is Andrew, and I serve as a pastor with our faith family, and I have the joy of leading us through our study of the scriptures this morning. So let me encourage you to grab your Bibles, no matter where you are located, and open them up to 1 Peter chapter 1. Find your way to the passage our friend Lauren read for us a moment ago as we continue a series we started last week as we seek to learn how, what it means for Christians to live as strangers and exiles, sinners of a different sort. And so we're going to dive into kind of the second installment of that series this morning, looking at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. But before we do that, let me voice a prayer over our time together. Father, as we open up our Bibles, would you open up our eyes to see beauty in its pages? Would you open up our hearts to receive all that you would have for us from this text? I pray that your spirit would minister among us, building us up in faith, hope, and love, all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, recently, I had the opportunity to reread uh, Cormac McCarthy's Pulitzer Prize-winning novel, The Road. And The Road tells the story of a father and a son who are traveling along the road uh, in a post-apocalyptic world. And snowy dust and ash just cover the landscape. Food and water is sparse. The weather is a constant threat to their survival. And then in the midst of all of that, you have these bands of cannibalistic marauders who are hiding in the shadows, scheming to overtake those who are traveling along the road. Well, this duo experienced many hardships and and sufferings in their effort to survive as they journeyed along the road, but they put one foot in front of of the other in an effort to preserve uh, that which is good in the midst of so much that is bad. And and as they were walking along the road, the father and son would, would rehearse a type of liturgy. They would echo a refrain at different points in their journey that that would inspire them to continue moving forward. They would say to one another, keep carrying the fire. And this image of carrying the fire would serve as the central metaphor for the whole story. And at a climactic part in the narrative, you have a moment when the father is facing his imminent death and he looks to his son and listen to the exchange. He looks to his son and he says, once again, you have to carry the fire. And the boy said, I don't know how to. Yes, you do. The boy asks, but is the fire real? Yes, it is. The boy asks again, where is it? I don't know where it is. And the father says, yes, you do. It's inside you. It always was there. I can see it. Well, the apostle Peter, when he sits down to write this epistle known as 1 Peter, he writes this letter in many ways like a spiritual father imploring his spiritual children to keep carrying the fire, that as Jesus's people, we are to preserve and to promote that which is good in a fallen world. And as we journey through the world that is and root to the world that is to come, we carry the fire. And this was specifically really important and timely for Peter's original readers because his letter originally addressed believers who were living as exiles dispersed throughout the region known as Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, and, and they were suffering tremendously. Not only were they experiencing the ordinary sufferings and struggles that come with living in a fallen world, but they were also suffering a whole nother layer as a result of their faith in Jesus. Many of them were being pushed to the fringes of society, socially alienated and marginalized. Many of them were being slandered by their former friends. Some were even being slaughtered as a result of their faith in Jesus. 
And so as a result of all these hardships and struggles, they were, many of them were being tempted to give up. And the fire within them was starting to die out. Some were moving towards and deciding, well, it'd be a lot easier for us to just assimilate with a broader society. And so they were assimilating with society to the demise of their gospel identity and to their gospel ethics. But then there were others who were responding in kind of an opposite yet equally uh, devastating way. Instead of assimilating with society, they were growing antagonistic towards society. An antagonism uh, towards the broader society that jeopardized the integrity of their gospel witness and their gospel influence. And both of those responses, assimilation and antagonism, represented a fire that was dying out within the people. And at just the right time, Peter pins this letter and he circulates it among them, addressing them, saying, guys, you have to keep carrying the fire. And you can imagine their childlike response as they hear those words. Well, we don't know how to. And the apostle says, yes, you do. They ask, well, is the fire real? And and he says, yes, it is. They say, well, where is it? I don't know where it is. And he reminds them, yes, you do. It's inside you. It's always there. I can see it. And imploring the believers that there's a fire burning within them, a fire that was ignited the moment they received new birth, the moment they were brought to life by the Spirit of God after hearing and believing the gospel of Jesus. This is why Peter bursts out in praise in verse 3. And he starts the passage with this doxology saying, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he praises God, but then he says why he's praising God. He says, because, because of his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And so he says, look, remember what happened to you. Remember the life that was birthed within you, the fire that was ignited when the Spirit of God acted upon you. And this reference to a new birth was, it recalls what Jesus taught in John chapter 3. In an exchange with a a disoriented individual about the kingdom of God, Jesus would tell this guy, look, truly I tell you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Meaning unless someone is born again, he or she has no eternal hope. For they will not participate in God's kingdom, which is the only kingdom that will last forever. It's the only kingdom that will remain standing when every other kingdom in this world falls. And so the man then asks Jesus, but how can a man be born when he is old? And can he enter his mother's womb a second time and be born? And then Jesus answered, truly I tell you, Unless someone is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Whatever is born of the flesh is flesh, and whatever is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I told you that you must be born again. The wind blows where it pleases, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. This is the reality that Peter is reminding his readers of. This is the reality that we are reminding ourselves of this morning too, that, that the, we're thinking and praising God in response to the sanctifying work of the Spirit who, who worked within us to bring new birth, who worked within us to cause us to come alive, who lit a fire of life within us. 
It has so many implications for us as we journey through this life. You see, becoming a Christian in every instance, no matter how it happens, it is always a miracle of mercy. You see, becoming a Christian is not synonymous with becoming religious. And becoming a Christian is not like uh, a human-centered commitment to uh, a process of moral rehabilitation so we just approve what's already present within us. No, becoming a Christian is a miracle of mercy that entails new life. It entails being born again. And this new life, this new birth, it is comprehensive. It affects every aspect of who we are as human beings. John Calvin put it this way. He said, by the term born again, Jesus means not the amendment of a part, but the renewal of the whole nature. And then C.S. Lewis would say something similar. For mere improvement is not redemption. Though redemption always improves people, even here and now and will in the end, improve them to a degree we cannot yet imagine. He says, but the gospel does not simply produce a better person of the, of the old kind. The gospel produces a new kind of person. And this new birth, this, this fire that is lit within us as we become followers of Jesus, as we are converted and become Christians, this experience of new birth, sometimes it happens dramatically. I have a friend named Robbie who was addicted to various drugs that caused him to steal thousands of dollars from his parents to, to fuel his addiction. And one night after a string, after a terrible string in his life, he entered his room and he picked up a Bible and began to read it. And as he read through the Gospels, Jesus met with him there. And the Holy Spirit began to attend to him. He spent all night praying and reading the Bible and communing with, with Christ and when he got up to leave his room the next day, he never once took another drug. He, his life changed dramatically in an instant. And now he is serving Jesus faithfully as a pastor in Nashville, Tennessee. And, and it's, it's incredible to see the work of grace in this guy's life. But his experience of new birth, though it was somewhat dramatic, it, it stands in contrast with the experience of, say, a guy like C.S. Lewis. When C.S. Lewis experienced new birth, it was much more subtle. It happened to him after lots of conversations he had with his friends about Jesus. It happened to him after he thought much about the gospel and the implications, and he began to reason through elements of the faith, reading many books that pointed him in Jesus' direction, including the Bible multiple times. And, and then one day we're told that Lewis got in his car to go to the zoo, and, and he tells the story that when he got into his car, he didn't believe the gospel. But when he got out of his car at the zoo, he believed the gospel. It was a much more subtle experience, less dramatic experience of the new birth that he experienced, but it was no less miraculous. Every experience of the new birth is, is a miracle of mercy because this miracle of mercy brings us into new life. It, it is new life that we spend the rest of our days as we journey through this world growing up into I love how C.S. Lewis would, would emphasize this in a, another story that he wrote called The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And he talks about a guy named Eustace who was an obnoxious kid before he experienced a type of new birth. And, and as Lewis is describing what happened to Eustace and the changes that took place, listen to how he describes it. He says, It would be nice and fairly nearly true to say from that time forth, Eustace was a different boy. But to be strictly accurate, 
he began to be a different boy. He had relapses. There were still many days when he could be very tiresome, but the cure had begun. See, when we experience being born again and given new life, we become new kinds of people. Now, we are still sinners this side of heaven, but we are sinners of a different sort. A new fire is ignited within us, and it burns as we carry it through this world, preserving and promoting all that is good in the midst of so much that has fallen and so much that that is broken. Now, this fire that we carry, Peter would qualify. He would point us in a specific direction in verse 3. This fire that we carry takes two forms. It is a living hope and an eternal inheritance. You think first about a living hope. Now, with that phrase a, that we have been given new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, those words are designed to stoke the fire within the believer, to keep it burning, to cause it to to intensify. And of course, a living hope would contrast with a dying hope. And Peter knows, as well as I do, uh, and as well as you do, that we tend to put our hope in dying things. We tend to put our hope in things that will die, and when that day comes and they do die, uh, our hope dies with it. And there's another exchange in the road that illustrates this. See, the father placed his hope in his son's survival and his son carrying the fire fire forward. And then the son asked the dad one day, he said, what would you do if I died? And he said, well, if you died, I would want to die too. Because hope lasts only as long as its location. And if it is put somewhere subject to time and space, then it can only be a dying temporary hope. But what Peter's reminding us of in this passage is that our hope is not located in that which dies. No, our hope is a living hope that comes through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Therefore, it is located in a person who transcends time and space. It is located in a person that guarantees it will last forever. So let me ask you, where is your hope right now? Some of you perhaps have placed your hope in the upcoming November election. And I want to assure you that is a vulnerable place for your hope to be. Others of you are placing your hope in similar dying places that will result in a dying hope. But Christian, keep in mind that ours is a living hope, a living hope that comes through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It is located in the one who defeated death and will never be subject to it again. Ours is a living hope that burns within us. It is the fire that we carry forward. But he also says, not only is it a living hope, he says, we've been given new birth into an inheritance. Now, much of what Peter is doing in the opening passage is designed to clarify the church's self-understanding. Specifically, he wants the church to understand that she represents the culmination of God's redeeming activity in the world. And that puts her in a story, the origins of which date back to the history of Israel. And in the Old Testament, Israel was promised an inheritance under the Old Covenant. And her inheritance concerned a land. It concerned the promised land. And Israel was given the land, but due to Israel's disobedience, their inability to remain faithful to God's covenant, they lost the land. Their their land was ravished. It was defiled. It was defaced. 
This happened successively by various dominations like the Assyrians and Babylonians, the Persians, the Ptolemies, the Seleucids, and the Romans. In fact, as Peter's writing this letter, the Romans occupied the land of Israel. The the Israelite people were not enjoying their inheritance at this moment. But Peter's identifying the church with that story, but he's saying, remember, you are part of a, a new covenant, a new covenant that is ratified through the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus, which he says earlier at the start of the letter. And so the church then lives light of this new inheritance, and they too have been given an, an inheritance. But this inheritance is not located to a geographical space in the world. It is an inheritance that's kept in heaven, an inheritance that when Jesus returns, he will bring with him. And Revelation chapter 21 pictures the new heavens and the new earth coming down. Jesus bringing our inheritance with him in the new heavens and the new earth. Now, the nature of this inheritance, it is so wonderful that Peter can't even describe it in positive terms. The only way he can kind of get after it is by using negative qualifiers. He says, this inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And these three words are not synonyms. Each word adds its own fuel to the fire that burns within us, adds its own fuel to the the fire of living hope that is burning within the believer. Imperishable means that our inheritance is free from death and decay. That there in the new heavens and the new earth, there will be no suffering and no death. It is not a place for pandemics. But then the word undefiled means that the new heavens and the new earth will be free from moral impurity. That it will be a place where sin isn't present. There will be no place for racism or injustice of any any form. But then you have the word unfading, which means that the new heavens and the new earth will be free from the, rav- the natural ravages of time, that there will be no fading beauty in heaven. It is not a place that ages and it will never spoil. That's incredibly, incredibly encouraging news. That is something to get excited about. I'm turning 40 in September, and that thought fills me with more anxiety than I care to admit. So it's been good for my heart to think about our inheritance and to meditate upon this passage because I'm reminded of an inheritance being kept for me in heaven and any temptation towards a midlife crisis can be combated by fixing my thoughts on my living hope and on my eternal inheritance. And I would encourage you to fix your thoughts there as well. But not only, if you notice as you keep reading in the passage, not only is our inheritance being kept for heaven in us, Peter says, look, we are being kept for our inheritance. Notice verse 5. He says, you are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, this is one of the most reassuring verses on how God will preserve his people until the end of time. This means, Christian, that you can neither sin nor suffer out of the, the grip of God's grace. You cannot sin or suffer your way out of God's grip of grace. Peter heard Jesus teach this in several ways. One example, John chapter 10, verse 28. Jesus would say, I give them, referring to his people, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. 
Now, as we live by faith and as we carry the fire through this world, that will require perseverance. It will require endurance. There's no doubt about that. But understand that that our perseverance, our endurance is made possible because of God's preserving presence in our lives. Because God is guarding our faith. He is keeping us for the inheritance that he will give to us when all is said and done. You see, once you experience new birth and you are born again, that process cannot be reversed. Once you are adopted into the family of God, you always belong there. And everything that comes with being a child of God is yours and will be yours. So we have a living hope and an eternal inheritance that fuels the fire that is burning within us. This fire that we are carrying through the world that is in route to the world that is to come. So Peter reminds us of this future reality. And when he shifts gears in verse 6, he kind of moves from the future and starts focusing on the present. And there's an important shift there where Peter reminds us that our future reality should shape how we respond to our present experiences. And so listen to what he says in verse 6. He says, you rejoice in this, that is your living hope and your eternal inheritance. Even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials. Saying you can rejoice in your future reality right now, even though for a short time, if necessary, you are suffering grief in various trials. Now that phrase, various trials, that's a junk drawer kind of term. Because suffering comes in many different shapes and sizes, from paper cuts to persecutions, as we walk through a fallen world and everything in between those two. Life in a fallen world is marred by various forms of hardships and struggles and sufferings. There are many reasons for us to grieve as we walk through this world, many opportunities to do so. One mother recently said, when I think about parenting, one word comes to mind, and that word is grief. Grief is a common experience in the world that is. But for the Christian, uh, our suffering of of our various, the the varied forms of suffering that we can experience, for the Christian, that can be compounded because, because not only do we deal with the ordinary sufferings that, just like everyone else, we also have to deal with the suffering that comes as a direct result of following Jesus. See, at the time Peter writes this letter, he's seeing things get bad for Christians. They were being ridiculed, slandered, marginalized, and socially alienated. Flashes of persecution were popping up, and and he was reading the scene, and he anticipated things were about to get much worse, which they would do not long after he wrote this letter, when Nero would actually sanction the persecution of Christians from the government side of things. And so during this terrible stretch, Christians were being fed to dogs. They were being crucified on crosses. They were being hung on posts and set on fire to light the streets of Rome at night. See, life is hard for everyone, but it can be especially hard for Christians who are called to embody the difference Jesus makes in all of life. And the more we become like Christ, the chances are the more suffering and the more hardship we will experience in the world that is. You see, the world did not like Jesus. 
The world rejected Jesus. The world crucified Jesus. So as you become more like Jesus, that doesn't mean you're going to receive widespread acceptance in the world. You are not going to be applauded and celebrated. No, when you become more like Christ and you look and live and love and serve like Jesus, it will come along with perhaps more rejection, more alienation, more marginalization. Paul would say this, that everyone who seeks to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, I know that that this is a foreign concept for many of us in the church in America. We haven't lived in that type of context, but it is a very familiar concept, and it is an encouraging reality to Christians who are suffering persecution in many other pockets around the globe. And so this passage, Peter is trying to bring our future reality to bear on our present experience of various forms of suffering, persecution included. And and as we think about his words, two things pop up about suffering, two incredibly important truths about what it means to suffer as a Christian. On one hand, it's unavoidable. Suffering is unavoidable. But on the other hand, in the second dynamic, which is perhaps most important for us to think about this morning, is that suffering is useful. Suffering is useful. Look at what he says. He says, So that the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, which, though perishable, is refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's saying your suffering is useful. And this reality is affirmed in every book of the New Testament. I'll just give you a couple of examples. You take James chapter 1, verse 2, where James writes, Consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its full effect, so that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. And then Romans chapter 5, verse 3, We also rejoice in our afflictions, because we know that affliction produces endurance, endurance produces proven character, and proven character produces hope. This hope will not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. And Peter is saying something very similar, saying suffering refines our faith as gold is refined by fire. As fire melts impurities away, and makes gold malleable. Suffering for the Christian is useful in the sense that it will melt impurities away from our faith. It will prove our faith is genuine and sincere and authentic and robust. And it will make us malleable so that we may be conformed more into the image of Christ. And our faith will result as that happens in praise, glory, and honor when all is said and done. It's a similar truth to what is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17. For our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. So we do not focus on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, and what is unseen is eternal. And this unseen reality is where Peter goes next in verse 8. He says, though you have not seen him, that is Jesus, you love him. And though not seeing him now, you believe in him and you rejoice in in inexpressible and glorious joy. 
because you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Let me try to summarize what, what this means. What this, how this passage may uh, affect us deeply and apply to our lives today. Let me summarize it this way. Carrying the fire. Carrying the fire. Living in light of what will be. That is our future reality. Living in light of what will be will keep us from being defeated by what is. But not only will it keep us from being defeated by what is, it will enable us to be served by what is. That our suffering and our hardship as we travel along the road through the world that is and route to the world that is to come, it will refine our faith. It will conform us into the image of Christ. It will enhance our experience of praise, glory, and honor in the new heavens and the new earth. Suffering is useful. Now, to say that suffering is useful, that does not mean that suffering ceases to be scary. No, the prospect of suffering is scary. And one reason why it's so scary is that we think that it will be so bad that no good could ever come of it. We fear that what we lose in suffering, we can never regain. But faith and this passage tells us to consider what we will gain because of our sufferings. To see how suffering is actually useful for the follower of Jesus. So there's a guy by the name of Malcolm Mutteridge who... Muggeridge, who after coming to faith in Christ late in life, he thought deeply about this reality and And he puts it in a very encouraging, listen to what he says about this dynamic. He says, I can say with complete truthfulness that everything I have, everything I have ever learned in my 75 years in this world, everything that has truly enhanced and enlightened my existence has been through affliction and not through happiness. In other words, if it were to be possible to eliminate affliction from our earthly existence, By means of some drug or other medical mumbo-jumbo, the result would not be to make life delectable, but to make it so banal and trivial to be endurable. This, of course, is what the cross signifies. And it is the cross more than anything else that has called me, that has called me to Christ. He understood that suffering is useful, but to say that suffering is useful doesn't mean it's not scary. And it certainly doesn't mean that suffering is to be desired. No, we shouldn't seek out suffering. It's no one wants to suffer. I think if we want to suffer, something's not right. We're not thinking well about life with God and life with Christ. No one wants to suffer. When Jesus entered the Garden of Gethsemane, he he too shared that he didn't want to suffer. And he took some moments just before the cross to pray. And he prayed three times for God to take the cup intended for him to drink away. But God did not take it away because it was necessary for Jesus to suffer and die. And in the end, Jesus said, not my will, but yours, your will be done. He resolved in that moment to keep carrying the fire. And he carried the fire all the way to the cross. And Hebrews 12 would tell us that Jesus looked to the joy that was set before him. It was a future reality that shaped his experience in that present moment. It was the future reality that determined his resolve to stand up and to move forward and to keep carrying the fire. This future reality where 
this joy that was set before him enabled him to endure the cross, despising its shame, where he then take his seat at the right hand of the throne of the Father. Seated there, reigning and ruling as the king of all things, where he will one day be surrounded by people from every tribe, nation, and tongue who are redeemed and made new through his death and resurrection. His suffering proved useful to him, and it proved useful to you and I. For we are saved through the suffering that Jesus endured, and we are saved through the resurrection he now enjoys. His suffering did not defeat him. His suffering served him. And as you and I are putting our faith in Christ, living according to that which is unseen, loving Jesus, as we are following him, understand that our sufferings will not defeat us either. And that because of the cross and the empty tomb, our sufferings will serve us too. This is the only reason why Peter could make the statement, rejoice. And he will say this about five times in 1 Peter, encouraging Christians to rejoice in the midst of their sufferings and their hardships and their trials. We may rejoice in the midst of our suffering for we know that the shadow of the cross and in the light of the empty tomb, that our suffering will not defeat us. It will actually prove useful to us. And so we keep carrying the fire. We keep carrying the fire no matter how hard and how dark life's road gets. And in so doing, we find that, that our suffering is serving not only ourselves, but it has the ability to serve those around us as well. As they would be drawn to the light burning within us, they would be drawn towards the fire of hope and faith and love that is unquenchable in our spirit, that is unquenchable in our soul, that we are carrying through the world that is and root to the world that is to come. And so, Christian, let me encourage you, keep carrying the fire. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would give us grace to do just that. I pray that we would keep carrying the fire that our living hope, our eternal inheritance, our future reality, that it would give shape to how we engage our present experiences with suffering and hardship and struggles. I pray, God, that faith, hope, and love would burn bright in our hearts, burn bright in our lives as a result of your mercy and as a result of your grace and as a result of your Holy Spirit being at work within us. God, give us grace to carry the fire in Jesus' name. Amen.